This week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Vincero Watches. Vincero makes super high quality and beautiful watches and in a stroke of genius decided to cut out the middleman and sell them directly to you on their website, saving all of us a lot of money. Vincero watches are sleek, stylish, and will stand up to the heat of your kitchen with ease. I've been wearing mine for a few months now and I haven't been able to go back to my other watches in my collection. Listeners of Let's Talk About Chef can get 20% off their entire order by using the promo code CHEF, that's C-H-E-F, at checkout. With Christmas right around the corner, Lit Vincero Watches and me help with the never-ending struggle of trying to find the time to get all of your holiday shopping done. Or, if you were like me, use the promo code to get yourself a watch. Trust me, you deserve it. Head over to VinceroWatches.com to get started. Before we get started on this week's brand new episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I would like to mention that because of listeners like you, the podcast is being enjoyed around the world. Let's Talk About Chef is being listened to in Japan, Sweden, Mexico, Iceland, Zambia, Peru, Korea, Ecuador, and about 48 other countries. Because of listeners like you rating and reviewing the show, we were able to become a new and noteworthy podcast on iTunes, and I sincerely want to thank you. Let's Talk About Chef can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, the Alexa in your house, and pretty much everywhere else you can think of to listen to podcasts. If you want to write into the show, you can email us at letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow me and DM me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. Just a quick warning, today's episode does contain some disturbing content. If you have kids around or are a bit squeamish, you have been warned. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. Being a chef is a wonderful thing. Every day we get to make food and feed people. We live in an amazing time for food. Every single day we have access to ingredients and recipes that chefs even 10 years ago could not imagine. Chefs are trusted. We are. We are trusted by the people that dine in our restaurants and order off of our menus that we are going to do everything we can to make sure that they are being fed what they ordered. A steak should be a steak. A fish should be a fish. And at some point, you do have to sit back and realize that this not-talked-about social agreement is kind of special. It's unique. A social contract between the diner and the chef. And because this is a beautiful world where nothing ever goes wrong and we all live in peace and harmony and joy and laughter, we can all rest easy knowing that chefs and cooks would never, ever do anything to compromise that. That chefs and cooks would never use their skills and their knowledge of how to cook food for sinister purposes. Like, say, for example, feeding people in their restaurants the braised, stewed, and grinded bodies of people that the chefs have murdered and have to dispose of. That chefs would never dream of compromising that relationship with their guests. The trust that diners put in the kitchens of the world that would never, of all things, feed them human beings. Thank God we live in a world where that nightmare isn't a reality. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. 
It was written by me, Brian Clark, and produced by Timothy McDonald. I want to give this week's shout-out to... Oh, wait. Nope. We don't live in a perfect world. And today we're going to talk about the worst thing imaginable. This past week, the internet exploded with the news that a restaurant in New York City was somehow legally serving human meat. And once this false and completely bullshit story hit social media, it very sadly traveled everywhere. People across the world were convinced for about two days that this restaurant, this chef, was serving people people. He wasn't, and the rage that can only be fueled by humans online started to die down. It seems that we are very quick to pass off a story and move on to the next one. But not me. I wanted to know more, and I wanted to know if chefs had, in fact, ever served human being before. I know it's dark, and I know it's unsettling. But it has happened before, and it's a very strange story. So, today on Let's Talk About Chef, we are talking about chefs who have fed people, people. Joe Metheny was humongous. He stood 6'2 and weighed 500 pounds. Living in the Baltimore, Maryland area, he did not have a very good life, something that shouldn't really come as any surprise to you considering what eventually happened. At 18, he joined the army and served in Vietnam, a place where the terror and violence of everyday life that surrounded him resulted in him, like so many other veterans, developing a very large heroin habit. Heroin was everywhere in Vietnam, and it provided a relief from the constant fighting and unpredictable weather in the jungle. When he returned home to Baltimore after his tour had ended, he brought his heroin addiction with him. It was something that ruled every aspect of his life from that point forward. Every day, Joe would work in a factory on the poor part of town and then score some drugs and zone out. He liked to do drugs under a bridge with other homeless people because Joe was spending all of his money on heroin and soon crack he wasn't able to afford a proper roof over his head. Now, I should probably explain to you that heroin addiction isn't like other drug addictions. People can maintain a lifestyle that you or I would deem normal while doing the drug daily. If done what you can call properly, one can maintain an addiction to heroin for decades, and Joe Metheny was one of these people. When Joe wasn't working, he would hang out in bars, sleep with prostitutes, and get high. For years, he kept this up, a routine of self-destruction, stealing from houses, robbing drug dealers, all so that he could just get more and more drugs. Eventually, he met a woman who he fell in love with, and they got married and had a son, and for a brief period, life seemed to be okay for Joe. 
He lived in a small apartment with his family, his wife who used to be a drug addict herself was clean, and he had started a new job as a truck driver, which would mean he would be away for long periods of time, sometimes, but it was all to provide for his son. They were a happy little family living a happy little life. Once his son was a few years old, Joe's wife started to use drugs again. Not very much, but enough for him to notice. And he was angry. They would fight constantly, him trying to hold on to the life that he had waited for so long, and her not wanting to listen. She was just throwing everything away they had worked so hard for. It was on one of these long-haul trucking gigs that his wife took their son and ran away. When Joe got home to his apartment in South Baltimore, he found it empty. There was no note, no phone message, nothing. They were gone, and he flew into a rage. He stormed out into the street and went to the bridge where he knew that she had done drugs before. He went to go find her, and as he went under the bridge, he found two homeless men, and he demanded that they tell him where his child was. They told him they didn't know, they had no idea, but that wasn't good enough for Joe. And he raised the axe above his head that he had brought with him. When he was finished, there wasn't much left, and he left the bodies where they lay. Still full of rage and not thinking clearly, he walked to the other side of the bridge and waited in the dark until he saw two prostitutes walking down the sidewalk, and he called them over, saying that he had money and wanted to have some fun. They made their way over to the bridge, and before they had time to scream, the axe came down again, and Joe had added another two victims to his body count. He dragged the bodies of the prostitutes into the river and used heavy rocks to weigh them down. Satisfied that no one would ever see them through the dirty brown water, he stood up to leave and by chance saw the face of a fisherman that was hiding on the other side of the riverbank, watching his every move. Not willing to take a chance, Joe ran through the water, catching the fisherman who had seen the entire thing, and he too was killed by the axe and his body was weighed down with stones under the water. Now, you can't really get away with murdering five people in cold blood under a bridge in a busy South Baltimore suburb without someone noticing. You can't really sneak back to the, your apartment carrying a blood-soaked axe if you are 6'2 and weigh 500 pounds. And it didn't take very long for police to arrest Joe for the murder of the two homeless men. They hadn't seen the other three bodies that lay only a few feet away just under the water. Joe went to prison for murder. But because the American justice system can sometimes be one of the most broken institutions imaginable, he was released after a year and a half without even having a trial, and he was back on the streets of South Baltimore, where he learned that his wife had left him to be with another drug addict. This man had made his ex-wife use her body to get money to buy drugs, and child services had swiftly taken his child away. He had no idea where his kid was, and he wasn't going to get him back. Because of his stint in prison, Joe had lost his truck driving job, so he scraped together what little money he could and opened a small burger stand just outside of town while also working in a factory. Every day he would make and sell burgers to people driving in and out of Maryland, and word spread quickly about the burgers that Joe was making, that they were delicious, that they were worth the drive, and people did drive from far and wide to come and taste the amazing burgers from Joe's stand. There was something about Joe's burgers, something that nobody could really put a finger on. Maybe it was the blend of beef and pork. Maybe it was the bun. Maybe it was the seasoning in the meat. But whatever the secret was, Joe began to sell more and more of them. He had moved out of the city and lived just on the outskirts of town in a small house next to his burger stand. And it would be nice to think that Joe had moved on that he had found that through cooking he could feed and help people, and for some reason he was naturally gifted at it, 
but that would be a lie. It actually couldn't be further from the truth, because there was a reason that Joe's burgers tasted different and tasted better than any burger anyone who made their way to his stand had ever eaten before. And that was because Joe's burgers were made of people. Joe's time in prison hadn't changed him at all. In fact, it had made him worse. The days and months locked up for murdering those homeless men under the bridge had turned him into an animal. An animal that was locked in a cage. Because he had left those two bodies under the bridge, he had been caught. And he wasn't going to get caught again. Joe was murdering prostitutes. And he was murdering a lot of them. After he killed them in some of the most vicious ways imaginable, I'm not going to tell you the details of that, he would chop up the bodies in his house, grind up the meat, mix the human meat with the ground beef, seasonings, and garlic, and serve the burgers to customers until he ran out. When he did, he would kill again. Sometimes his freezers would be full of patties ready for the grill, and more and more people came to eat these amazing tasting burgers, Joe would have to murder more and more people to not only satiate his thirst for killing, but also to satiate the appetite of customers who for two years at this point had been eating people. Joe was arrested in 1996. One of his soon-to-be victims had run away. She'd scaled an eight-foot fence with barbed wire on top to get away from him. When the police searched his burger stand and home, they found mountains of evidence of what actually was going on behind the kitchen door and what he had been up to. Because Joe didn't keep records and he only accepted cash, nobody really knows how many people ate one of his burgers. Because of the popularity of them and the lineups of people to get their hands on one, the estimates are in the thousands. He made thousands of unknown cannibals. Vegetarians are very proud of their diet. They are very proud to not consume animals or animal byproducts, and honestly, all of the power to them. We have all heard the joke, how can you tell who the vegetarian is at a party? They'll tell you. But it was this fierce pride that led to a grisly discovery in a vegetarian restaurant in Bangkok, Thailand. It was like any other night in Bangkok. The restaurant was packed with customers eating on low plastic stools, slurping and devouring the vegetarian noodles that the restaurant was known for. The streets were full of scooters and people and smells and music. 
The vegetarian chef turned off his oven and walked over to the last customer in the place, a 61-year-old regular who always gave him a hard time when he was trying to close up shop. They usually argued, but that night was different. That night, the arguing had turned to yelling. Then it had turned to shoving and punching, and somehow when it was all over, the chef was standing in his kitchen looking at the dead body of the 61-year-old. Panic started to set in as he tried to figure out what to do with the body. Ideas filled his brain, like throw him in an alley, try to put him in the garbage. And then an idea came along that he realized he could do. He could serve this man to his customers. The next day, the broth of the vegetarian restaurant seemed different, richer. Somehow, it tasted like bacon. Some of the guests were concerned, but they kept eating. It was so good. This continued on for days, more and more people eating the noodles, not paying attention to the very real fat in the broth, the richness of the soup, and the actual meat in the bowls. The reason they didn't notice the meat was because it was unlike anything they had ever seen before. They assumed it was fake. It tasted too much like pork, but the best pork they had ever eaten, for it to actually be pork. Word spread through Bangkok about the amazing food at this restaurant, and eventually a tourist walked in. They had seen the line. They had seen the happy people, and being a proud American vegan, they were going to finally be able to eat something that their diet allowed them to in a city where vegans can sometimes have a hard time. The bowl of noodles was delivered. The same that for days had filled the stomachs of hundreds of other people, except the hundreds of other people had not been an American vegan. And upon tasting the broth and seeing the strange-looking meat, the tourist jumped to her feet and stormed back to the kitchen to give the chef a piece of her mind. She pulled back the curtain and saw the chef standing over the leg of his victim, chopping the meat off of the bone. Blood had splattered the walls of the kitchen and was virtually everywhere. The tourist fainted, and the chef ran. Authorities still do not know where that chef is. He made a break for the country and hasn't been seen since. What was left of the remains of the 61-year-old victim were found in the refrigerator. As police were investigating the restaurant, searching the kitchen and using forensics, they could hear something from outside the door. Working in Bangkok, it wasn't unusual for crowds to gather at a crime scene to try and see what was going on. And so, out of anger, one of the detectives pushed open the door to tell the cops to set up a perimeter, except there was no crowd of crime scene photographer wannabes. Instead, there was a single file line of people, a line that stretched down the street and around the corner. Word had not spread about the body in the soup yet. These people hadn't heard what the chef had done, but word had spread about how delicious his vegetarian noodles were, how rich and flavorful they were, how they were unlike anything else in Bangkok, how they were addictive, and the line was there to try them. Cannibalism is something that I honestly never thought I would talk about on this podcast. It's a subject that is taboo. It's dark, it's scary, and it's disturbing. But it is also eating. It also in some strange way counts as eating food. Cannibalism is not a new thing to human beings. It's not new because we have done it for a long time. 
People have performed the act for religious ceremonies, sacrifice, or survival. As recently as a few years ago, a man was found eating people because he thought it would give him supernatural powers. It didn't, and he's in jail. I'm not interested in talking about why cannibalism is wrong. We all know it is. But I wonder if you noticed the thing about those two stories that was similar. The one thing that happened in both cases. I'm not talking about the similarity in Cook's committing murder. I'm not talking about them tricking people into accidentally committing a felony. I'm talking about the lines. About the people wanting more. People couldn't get enough of eating other people. Of course they did this unknowingly, and I'm sure that it was horrible when they found out what they had inadvertently done, but if we remove the taboo and look at the science behind the lineups, the reason behind the admiration for this mystery meat guests were being served, it actually becomes quite fascinating and really, really scary. Researchers who have studied cannibalism have said that people who eat people get a high from it. They can feel a rush of euphoria or happiness. Scientists don't really know why that is. Maybe it has something to do with genetics, or maybe it goes back to our brains and to the hunters that we were way in the past that are buried deep inside of us. The primal urge to kill and conquer others. In the isolated mountains of Papua New Guinea, there was a tribe of people called the Four. The four were untouched by the outside world until the 1930s and went unstudied until the 1950s. When scientists finally made their way to the mountains, they discovered that an epidemic called the Laughing Death was killing women and young children. The Laughing Death was caused by eating human meat. According to the scientists, the four people ate their dead instead of burying them to protect them from worms and maggots. Better to be in the stomach of a loved one than in the stomach of a worm, or so the tribe thought. Even better was the stomach of a female loved one, because her body could tame the dead spirits. So the woman scooped out the brains and cooked and roasted the bodies, sneaking tidbits to their young children, and they were all getting very, very sick. The disease called Kuru caused the ill to lose control of their bodies and their emotions, and eventually they died from it. What baffled researchers the most was that Kuru wasn't a virus or a living bacteria. Instead, it was a strange process that researchers compared to Dr. Chekhov's transformation into Mr. Hyde. The thin line between good and evil crossed by a twisted protein. One that tricked the other proteins in the brain to twist like it, damaging the lobes in your brain. It became addicting. It became bewitching. And they couldn't get enough. The four people stopped eating their dead half a century ago, but the epidemic spanned years. The last victim of Kuru died in 2009, and the disease can lie dormant for years before attacking your brain. But similarly, confusing diseases are out there, like mad cow disease, which also comes from infected meat, just not human meat. Whatever the reason, I sincerely hope that I and you never get to experience it that we never have the opportunity to be tricked by someone who committed the worst thing imaginable and used their skills to hide what they did in food. I meant what I said at the start of the show. The unspoken agreement between a chef and a guest is important. It's special and it's rare. It's something that we don't take for granted, but it's something that has been broken before. And let's hope it doesn't get broken again. 
I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark, and produced by Tim McDonald. I want to thank Vincero Watches for letting me talk about them, and remember to use the promo code CHEF at checkout. If you want to write to the show for any reason, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. We are back next Thursday with another brand new and less creepy episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And so until then, as always, have a great service and have a great week.